From the moment I was born, I belonged with someone. Mom and dad brought this little guy home, uh, and I became part of the family with Leo and Peggy Head. One of the ways to tell the story of my life is to trace my belongings, my connections. So I was part of Cub Scout Pack 277 at Mary Mitchell Elementary School. I was on a Little League baseball team. We were the Royal Crown Phillies. We were terrible. <laughs> two wins my last two years in the League. I was part of the soccer team and then later the stocking team at Windows Grocery Store. I was in the Owensboro High School Marching Red Devil Band. Great hats. <laughs> And very hot. Uh, Paul and Drew came along. That was my family, my connection there. I was in seminary, a connection to seminary class. And across the years, have served on a number of church staffs. I always end up taking strange photographs at one time or another, sharing time with those folks. And you can all tell the same sort of story we could walk through today. And you could kind of tell the same kind of story. Our life is built around relationships and connections with others. Some last across years, like our family, others just for a season. Well, why is that? Why are we relentlessly drawn to live in connection with others? Well, it's at the core, first of all, of of being human. God himself exists in relationship. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and he said he made us in his image. So human beings are created as relational beings. We're created for connection with other people. And that's why that this season of the coronavirus has, has reminded us of that and been so difficult. And studies show that the, the sense of disconnectedness has really hurt people across all ages. We're, we're built for together. Followers of Jesus, when we come to Christ, we're immediately brought into connection with God through Christ, but also we're, we're saved for connection with Jesus' family, the church. The minute we enter this relationship with, with Jesus, we're, we're adopted and made a part of his forever family in the church. Once we were strangers, now we're a family. Once we were not a people of God, now we are the people of God. We're drawn into his love. And so living hope is a, a flesh and blood local experience of that connection. It's one of the reasons why we talk about covenant church membership so much. But what we call salvation doesn't end at conversion and and baptism. From the beginning of our life as a disciple, we're to know and love and obey Jesus. And for as many years as the Lord gives us across those years, we're to become increasingly like Jesus in our, in our thoughts, in our character, in our activities, and to join his mission. We call that spiritual growth. Well, how does that spiritual growth happen? Well, last several weeks we've been looking at to see what God desires. We're looking at that through the lens of what we call the disciple's life or the disciple's cross. These are five rhythms of the life of a disciple. These, these entwined, indispensable rhythms that we gather for worship because we want to live as worshipers who make much of God wherever we go. That we equip ourselves for growth because we're lifelong apprentices to Jesus, becoming more and more like him across time. We serve the church and the world because that's what Jesus did, the physical and spiritual needs of the world. Next week, we'll talk about what it means to make more disciples, to lead more people to come to know, love, and trust Jesus. And today, we want to look at the rhythm of connecting with a group. We say that's a part of these five indispensable rhythms, not because the church offers groups as a part of our programming, but because our king has determined that spiritual growth happens best in connection with other disciples. 
Now that seems a little odd to us because everything in our culture tends to train us to think of everything, including our spiritual matters, as an individual quest. The two things most uh, U.S. Americans would say are private to discuss are are money and religion. (laughs) And so what you believe and practice, that's your choice, that's your business, and, and nobody else's. There's only one problem with that. King Jesus never said that. And he never modeled that in any way. He defined faith out of a Middle Eastern context where individuals are not just part of a family or community, but are find their whole identity in their family, their sense of of being shaped for life in their sense of community. Now, let's be clear. Faith is certainly individual for our saving. Nobody else can repent of sin for you. Nobody else can trust Christ alone for your salvation for you. That's something you individually have to do. But faith is immediately connected to other disciples for our living, which is why the New Testament is full of all these one another's, right? Love one another, be patient with one another, pray for one another, encourage one another, uh, hold one another together. Jesus means for us to lean into intentionally living out our faith with a smaller group of disciples. Now, Since that's not our default setting, we don't normally think that way, what does that look like? Well, here's the good thing. Jesus not only commanded us to go and make disciples, but he he showed us how. In his three-year ministry, Jesus modeled life together with a a small group of 12 guys. We call them the apostles. And even a smaller group of an inner circle of three, Peter, James, and and John. So this morning, we're going we're gonna to walk through a series of incidents in the Gospel of Mark. You may go ahead and turn there in your Bibles to just the first part of Mark, and, and, and we're going to see how Jesus participated in and encouraged a soul-deep faith connection with, with his small group and how he models and intends for us to do the same thing. Now, a little different approach this morning. Normally, we, we kind of camp in one passage, and then we're there the whole time. This morning, we're going to look at several passages that explore Jesus' group life. So keep your Bible open, keep your device already there to the Gospel of Mark. And we're going to begin in Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3. Early in Jesus' ministry, he began preaching uh, the good news that God's kingdom had broken into the world. That God had broken into the world with his life-changing power. And he gave proof of that with healings and with casting out of demons. He called people to believe and and to trust him. And word spread and the crowds began to to grow. Jesus already began calling some to leave everything and to follow along with him. And now the time had come for him to to settle who that whole group was going to be. So in Mark chapter 3, hear the word beginning in verse 13. And Jesus went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. So he pointed these 12, and then you get the list of these specific men, beginning with that inner circle of, of Peter, James, and John. But right away, in that first thing, Jesus lays a foundational principle. He models God's desire that we connect in groups, first of all, that, I, that, that intentionally keep Jesus central. Keep Jesus central. Mark chapter 3 verse 14 says he called them that they might be with him. 
Now, that indicates Jesus' primary desire and goal for the group. Now, being with him, these 12 were going to experience some remarkable things. They were going to have a front row seat for, for healings and exorcism. They were going to see the blind see and the deaf hear and the lame walk and lepers cleansed. They were going to hear Jesus teaching right from his very own lips. They were going to see miracles like a, a storm stilled. And they were going to see, uh, see 5,000 fed. They were going to overhear him pray. They were going to see Jesus delight as he engaged with children and hear his boldness as he, he came against those religious leaders that challenged him. They watched him welcome in love the outcast and the, the broken and the immoral. But the focus of all of that for them was ruthlessly relational and focused on uh, Jesus at the center. All of that was to know him better. If you look over Mark 9, at the end of his ministry, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, just them, to, to a mountain. And there he revealed to him his full glory as God. That they saw him in, in blinding light and glory. And they started having these conversations with Moses representing the law of God and with Elijah representing all the prophets and the history of God. And they were talking about God's eternal redemptive plan and what Jesus was going to do to accomplish that and to fulfill all they had been doing. And, and good old foot in his mouth, Peter, saw that and said, Lord, this is great. We'll make three tents, one for Moses and one for Elijah and one for you. This is fantastic. And in that moment, Mark 9, 7, 8 says, And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. Jesus only. Jesus was not equal to, to Moses or Elijah. He was the fulfillment and was the point of all they had seen. Jesus only was to be the focus and the point. So, so look at this. That focusing on Jesus alone bookends Jesus' earthly ministry at the beginning with his disciples and near the end. This whole thing is built around seeing him at the center. So we talk about connecting with a group. We're talking about relationships with a particular focus. We're not just talking about having some friends who happen to go to church where you do and maybe at the same service that you do. People with whom you share morals that you like to hang out with, like to go to the movie or to tailgate with, that you coach the kids sports together with. Those things can be said of any group anywhere. No, these, these groups are to be built on Jesus-centered relationships where each person in the relationship, in the group, understands that we are connected to help one another pursue Christ and see Christ, and hear Christ, and know Christ, and love Christ, and obey Christ, and become like Christ, and live for, live for Christ. Jesus is the hub of the group. He is the sun at the center of the solar system of all those relationships. He's the one around which everything rotates. Now, all the other stuff can be there, and should be there, be a part of that. But the world we live in relentlessly pulls us into other stories. It relentlessly pulls into other things that want our attention and want our affections and to have that life for us. And we desperately need other friends who are also disciples of Jesus to consistently, intentionally remind one another that Jesus is the source. 
that Jesus is the goal, that Jesus is better than anything the world offers, that Jesus is enough and is worth giving all that we have and all of our energy and all that we have to know and love and follow him. So Jesus is central to this idea of connecting in a group. Now, how do we then make sure that our group does this? This is where the DNA of our, of our Living Hope groups come in. We talk about the, the DNA, that the code of a cell that points to what the whole body will be. So we're talking about disciples helping each other live out all we are as a church. So we want our groups to live this DNA, uh, the DNA of, of digging deep in the Word of Hope, discovering the Word of God, nurturing the life of hope. We nurture a heart of hope in Christ and advancing the mission of God or advancing the mission of hope, the kingdom of God. And what Jesus does, he models all of us, all of those things for us in his life with his disciples. So he, he models for us God's desire that we intentionally have groups to keep Jesus central, but also that know Jesus' word, that know Jesus' word, digging deep, discovering that word. Mark four is where we're going to go next. And the disciples there heard Jesus tell the parable of the farmer who, who sowed the seed. And remember, there were different kinds of soils. Some of the seed didn't sprout. Some of it, uh, it, it grew up and then withered. Some of it got choked out by, by weeds. But in some, the seed took root and grew and produced a crop. And Jesus told the story and said, let him who has ears to hear, hear what I'm saying. Well, the disciples had a pretty good idea that Jesus' story wasn't a story about agricultural practice. <laughs> but they weren't totally sure. So later when they were by themselves, they, they asked him about this. Mark 4, 10 and 11. So they asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables. He said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? And then he carefully, patiently told them what the parable was. Seed was the word of God. The souls were people's hearts and they're responsive to God's word in that way. Now this happened all the time. The disciples regularly benefited from additional private teaching and application by Jesus of his public teachings. So over in Mark 13, there's recorded a time when they're, they're walking through Jerusalem. And one of the disciples said, Lord, look at the stones of the temple, how big and beautiful they are. And Jesus said, I tell you what, not one of these stones is going to be left on another. This whole thing's going to come collapse and fall down. They didn't quite get that. In Mark 13, 3, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew come privately to Jesus and say, tell us, when will these things be? What will the sign be when all of these things are about to be accomplished? And what happened next was Jesus clarifying his second coming, clarifying what the end of time was going to look like. But that happened just with that small little group to clarify things. So you see, the disciples were there for the Sermon on the Mount and all the parables. They overheard Jesus' conversations when there were spiritual principles given. But there's even more time. When they talked and, and, and walked together and shared meals and Jesus kept on teaching. And he wanted to make it really clear that, that knowing and applying his word was a crucial reality for them. So over in, in John, he said this, if you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples. And you will know the truth. The truth will set you free. Abide. 
be at rest in, settle down into my word. So when we talk about these groups, connecting with a group, we want those groups to engage with scriptures. Now, now here's what we're not saying. We're not saying the group exists just to get together and have a Bible study. And to watch a video or have somebody prepare a lesson and give us a lesson. We have other environments for that. We call those equipped core courses or in our ABS, we have those kind of things. But in these groups, the idea is that everyone will engage with Scripture. Because everyone has the Word of God. Everyone has the Spirit of God. Everyone can have this robust exploration. We need to know what the Scripture meant when the, when the Lord first gave it and what it means to us today as we apply it so that together we help one another develop minds and hearts and affections that are saturated with the Word of God. Now, why is that so necessary? So that when in our lives as a disciple we come together and we find that one of our brothers and sisters is wrestling with anxiety or fear, or maybe they have questions about, about how am I going to parent my child in this season of life, or they have a major career decision to make, or they have to handle some crisis, or there's some intense pain that has come to their life, and they're really having struggles with doubting who God is and why, God, are you doing this? When those moments happen, and that group begins to talk about it, that what's going to, the counsel that's going to come from these friends will not just be the common sense of the world that any ordinary group of friends might come up with. No, what might be there is a supernatural sense of the truth of God's word coming through brothers and sisters to another brother or sister. It gives a totally different perspective on life. It's what we're designed to live and to begin to live that out. So we begin to lean into knowing, living out God's word. But Jesus also shows us how we intentionally have a group that will share Jesus' heart. It's because to get us into nurturing a heart of hope. The disciples experience all of life with Jesus, and that means they experience lots of different things with him. Sometimes uh, they experience moments of celebration uh, with him. Uh, you remember when Jesus called the tax collector Matthew to come and follow him. Now, the tax collectors uh, were, were tools of the Roman oppressors, and, and they were also Jewish people who were, in a way, kind of betraying their own Jewish people because they, they could defraud them and extract more money from them to make more money. And so those tax collectors really didn't have a place to belong. They were just used by the Romans and hated by their own people. No place to belong. But then Jesus called Matthew to come and be a part of his group and to belong with him. You remember what, what happened next? This is in Mark 2. What happened, happened next was that Matthew threw a dinner party. In Mark chapter 2, verse 15, it says, And as Jesus reclined a table at his house, Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Well, who were Matthew's friends? Well, they were other tax collectors and other outcasts. They couldn't belong to anybody. So he invited all his outcast friends so they could meet the man who had given him a shot at real life and belonging. And you know, Jesus, if you follow along in the Gospels, he was always going to parties. He was always eating dinner with somebody. Matter of fact, he went to so many parties, they called him a drunk and a glutton. It didn't match what they thought he should do, but they celebrated those moments together. But there were other times when Jesus entered into moments of intense suffering. 
In Mark 5, we're told that a synagogue ruler named Jairus had a terribly sick daughter. And he came and begged Jesus, come in and heal my daughter. And Jesus dropped everything immediately and was going to go with him. Well, along the way, the crushing crowd of people around them, there was a woman there, you may remember, who was very, very sick, but she believed Jesus could heal her. She couldn't get close. She reached out and just touched the, the hem of his, of his robe as he went by, and instantly she was healed. Jesus sensed the power had gone out of him for healing, and he turned and said, who touched me? And the disciples said, uh, people everywhere, how are you going to know? And the woman stepped forward and said, I think it was me. And Jesus looked at her and blessed her and assured her of her healing and, and, uh, and affirmed her in her faith. And just in that moment, the disciples saw how Jesus dealt with, with one individual need and one individual life. Just at that moment, news came from Jairus' house that his little girl had in fact died. Can you imagine that father's face? Shock on his face, tears on his face. And you just get the sense that Jesus leaned near, looked him right in the eye and said, don't fear, just believe. And he took Peter, James, and John only and they made their way to Jairus' house. Over in Mark 5, beginning in verse 39, we find this is what happened next. And when Jesus had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child's not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother, and those who were with him, that's Peter, James, and John, and went into where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began, with, began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. Now you see, groups of disciples carry Jesus' life in them by the Holy Spirit. So what that means is that we can make Jesus' heart come alive to another in these same kinds of ways. What's that look like? Sometimes it happens by celebrating the regular joys of life together. Birthdays, anniversaries, graduations, new jobs, retirements, finishing chemo, any excuse for a party. We want to be together and delight in this, what families do. But it's also to be powerfully present and a healing help in the tough times. And we've seen this over and over among our groups here, that you're carrying someone through their, their broken heart of grief because they're weeping along with them or they're being a support when the burdens of life are so crushing that you don't think you can stand on your own and they come along and say, we'll hold you up. Families do that too. So when Paul wrote to the Corinthians about being one body, he said this way, he said, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member's honored, all rejoice together. You got a group like that? You got a group who can laugh to you for Jesus with you to, for Jesus' goodness or weep with you and flesh out Jesus' compassion? That's why you, you need a group. But there's more of this idea of nurturing. He means us to inner, intentionally nurture Jesus' life in each other, this, this life of being like him. You see, in those three years with Jesus, the disciples were in an apprenticeship. They were learning to, to be and live like Jesus. Sometimes they got it, and sometimes they didn't, which means they're a lot like us. When they got it, Jesus encouraged them. We see this a lot with Peter. 
Remember, Peter was the, was the first one to confess that Jesus was the Messiah, the anointed one of God that they've been all looking for. And remember, when, when Jesus heard that, he said, Peter, you're so blessed. God's revealed this to you. you. You've gotten this encounter with God that shown him who I really am. And in Mark 6, another time, after the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus sent the disciples ahead across the sea. And in the night, while the waves were high and they were struggling a little bit, Jesus came walking to them on the water. And so in Mark 6, it says this beginning in verse 48. He saw they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by him, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. Now, Matthew gives another little thing. They saw him and were terrified, even though Jesus said, don't fear. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. Now, you know how it ends, right? He sees the storm around him. He looks around. Peter begins to sink. Jesus has to rescue him. But even in his chiding, you get this sense of encouragement from Jesus. Hey, little faith, why didn't you believe? We could have walked further. We could have gone further. So he's both, both celebrating and encouraging along the way. But when they didn't get it, right, Jesus held them accountable. Just after Jesus had... Peter had confessed Jesus as Messiah. Jesus described his mission. He said, what this means is I'm, I'm going I'm to be betrayed. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to die. I'm going to rise again. And Peter said, that's, that's not how Messiah is supposed to talk. And he took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. And just after he's encouraged him, in Mark 8, verse 33, it says, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. But you're not setting your mind on things of God, but on the things of man. Both those sides. So you see, connect groups of disciples drill down to deal with the core stuff of the soul that is shaping us like Jesus or not. The point is not to share a generic spirituality. We're all kind of together like Jesus. But to help one another become like Jesus to live by the gospel. And what that requires is a level of honesty, of vulnerability with one another, of taking off our masks with one another. So there's some other people who know the good and the bad about me, the good and the mess, the the victories and the struggles, the places I believe and the places I doubt. And, And out of that kind of honesty, then brothers and sisters can express to one another the same things that Jesus did. We can give gospel encouragement to one another. When we see faith, when we see evidences of grace or or spiritual growth, and we see, I know there was that reaction that you had three months ago, but I'm not seeing that reaction of anger or impatience anymore. You're growing more like Jesus. Or, or you responded this way to your boss, or you, you were doing this way with your children, or, or you were avoiding giving witness, but now I'm seeing you begin to live that out, and we cheer that on in one another. It's great to have somebody who will say, I see you actually growing because they know about you. But also that, in, that involves gospel accountability. When we see disbelief, or attitudes or actions that may not match God's word, or the gospel, or our calling as Christians to be able to say, brother, that, that's not like Jesus, not what he wants from you. A sister, that's not 
that's not who you're supposed to be in Jesus. And we call to confess, and we confess our sins one to another. We're honestly, I need help here. Why? Because the desire of this is that we help each other fight sin and pursue holiness. You see, you and I were never meant to live out this life in this world fighting against the world, the flesh, and the devil on our own. It was meant for us to do it together in community with other brothers and sisters. No disciple will grow deep and strong and holy and joyful apart from this kind of regular soul-level conversation. So i got to ask, do you have brothers and sisters with with whom you can have this kind of conversation? Not just where you're sitting, are you going to be there on Sunday? But this kind of conversation, but what's really going on in your soul, is there somebody who knows you fully, knows your good and knows your mess, who knows you fully, loves you, but loves Jesus more, is willing to help you press in that direction. That's the point of this community. And ultimately, all of this is meant to help us intensively be in a group that intentionally advances Jesus' mission. All of these are tied to and result in disciples who know, love, and obey Jesus, who are increasingly becoming like Jesus in thought, character, behavior, and joining Jesus on his mission in the world to make more disciples. It was always Jesus' intent to launch the disciples out. Look back at the very beginning, again back in Mark chapter 3. Verses 14 and 15, it says that, that he, he called them, those he, he wanted to, they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach, and they might have authority over, over demons in some spiritual warfare there. They were always to be sent out. The disciples were being prepared to be sent out into the world with power. Disciples are the tip of the spear of Jesus' gospel revolution. So we want to understand group life is never separate from our mission together. We're going to talk more about this next week. This mission we've been given to to share his hope with our our families, our neighbors, and every generation. Uh, It's not that we have all that in missions and we give evangelism and we, we share with people and then over here we get together a little group in our little huddle. No, it's not a separate, siloed kind of thing. It's all together. So connect groups, encourage one another's gospel conversations. We pray for the lost people that each of us are trying to reach in that way. And, but, but remember also what Jesus said. He said, love one another, and this is how people will know you're my disciples. See, these kind of relationships are not normal. Most people don't experience this. Have relationships with other people with this kind of purpose and love and depth and support and joy and honesty and vulnerability and encouragement. It's so unlike anything else in the world that people will be drawn to that and say, how in the world? What's the reason for that? And we can say the reason for that is Jesus. And then we can invite them to join us in the circle to enjoy his love together. So, so I want you to see that connecting with a group is an indispensable part of life as a disciple of Jesus. These kinds of relationships are be part of the story we tell of our faith. So can I ask you, first of all, are, are you connected to Jesus? 
Do, do you know him? Do you have a relationship with God through Jesus by repenting of sin and trusting Christ? Today could be your day. If you have that relationship with him, are you a part of a connect group? These kinds of relationships. If not, let me encourage you to plan out to be part of our next session of the Rooted Experience. It's our, our gateway into group life. You can send us an email uh, at connect at lhbg.org, and that's the place to get connected. That'll be the first step in. But you say, well, I'm already part of a group. If you are, does your group look like this? Is the focus on Jesus, on helping each other begin to live that out? Are you, are you giving gospel encouragement, gospel accountability, sharing all of life together, the good, the bad, the ugly, the sorrowful? Are you living on mission together? It's crucial. I want to leave you with this picture of this kind of life. Disciples of Jesus were never meant to grow solitary like individual trees in a meadow. Oh, it's pretty enough, and trees will be pretty in the fall and in the spring, and it gives shade in the summer, and that's great. That's not how we were designed to live. We were designed to be interconnected, like a, like a stand of aspens in the Rockies. So beautiful at this time of, time of year. We see a stand of aspens like that. It's important to know that aspens all emerge, every single tree, from a single source. So that every aspen tree in that stand is genetically identical to the parent tree. In the same way that all of us come to life from Christ alone. Each tree's root system is interconnected with all the others, just like we're one as brothers and sisters in Christ. The trees share nourishment and those that are closer to the water absorb that water and then pass it on to the connected trees the way we might pass on the word of God, the truth of God to one another. When one is attacked by disease or insect, the other trees in the grove rush nutrients to the damaged area, the way, the way uh, uh, immune cells rush to the site of an infection in the human body in the same way that we help one another fight sin and for holiness. Even when forest fires ravage through and burn everything down, the root systems of aspens remain safe and new sprouts emerge soon after the fire burns out in the same way that we can help each other continue on with, with life in Christ, even when life itself is devastating and hard. And these groves all have trees of different ages, and they have to have that in order to thrive in the same way that a group has people of different personalities and ages and levels of spiritual maturity to help one another grow. We're all connected. Connect with a group, brothers and sisters. It's Jesus' way to grow a strong and healthy, healthy faith. It's his way to sustain his life in a tough world and to show his beauty, and we do it all together. And that kind of life, well, that makes for quite a story that we can tell. Let's pray together. We're so grateful, Lord, to call you Father, to be a part of your family. Lord, that means so much to us, not just for us individually, but for us as a people. So would you help us, Lord, to resist the urge to do things on our own? 
Would you help us to resist privatizing our faith? Would you help us to resist living in isolation and help us lean into the kind of deep, rich, biblical community around Jesus that you've always intended us to live. Help us take whatever steps we need to, either to get in a group or to change the tone of the group we're already in to begin to match what you've already shown us. It's a great way to live. And we want to live that for your glory and for your honor. And we thank you that you'll help us do that. In Jesus' name, amen.